0: you pray with me, Father, today we declare that we really have nothing to boast in ourselves except for you. And so we come to declare your praise and we come to also show our dependence on you, how much we need you today. So would you speak to us by your spirit now through your word in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Many people look ahead to the Christmas holiday season all year with anticipation because it's the season that you get to see most, if not all, of your family. Many people look ahead to the Christmas holiday season all year with dread because it's the season you have to see most or all of your family. Many people feel both anticipation and dread about these days and with plenty of fair reason. Family can be a messy, marvelous, dramatic, delightful, terrible, or tremendous thing. And that can vary hour to hour or season to season. So, as we have been lately talking about how the gospel impacts our home lives, I thought it would be timely today to talk about what that means for our families, specifically our extended families, whom we may or may not live with or near. How should our faith relate to our relationships with our relatives, our aging parents, grown children, brothers, sisters? Grandparents, grandkids, aunts, uncles, nephews, nieces, cousins, in-laws. Many of us will be seeing them shortly. And if our faith is to impact every part of our lives, it will impact us with our relatives. So, let's open God's word now and we'll turn together to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy Chapter 5, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can use one of the ones in the seat backs in front of you, and the page number's on the screen. First Timothy 5, this passage will show us that even though God's family is our greatest family, and even if some of us have a primary human family with a spouse or children, that by no means negates or obliterates our bonds to our extended family members. Look with me at the very beginning. In verse 1, it says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, that's talking about treating people in the church like we do extended family. But don't miss the presumed implication here. It says to treat them as you would... Your family members. In other words, we should already be treating our natural families like this. Paul then continues his thoughts along the lines of caring for family. Verse 3, he says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, in the first century, the average lifespan, especially for men, was very low. Some say even mid 30s was the expected lifespan. And so there tended to be very high numbers of widows. And the church, following Jesus' example and his teachings to care for vulnerable people, often stepped into the gap and helped care for widows in practical ways. But they couldn't do everything. The demand was too high. So Paul, in these verses, instructs Timothy to to put a kind of triage system in place, you could say. So the church could focus on those who were most alone and most in need while leaning on existing families to care for their own. Right? So that's what he's doing here. Verse 4 again, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household, and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Verse 5, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In verses 9 to 15, as it goes on, it adds some details about how this system of widow care should look. And then in verse 16... In response to how some women had become idlers and busybodies, Paul specifically encourages godly women to play a key role in this work. says, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now that doesn't mean men get to shirk this responsibility and leave it to the women. Remember, verse 8 just said to men, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we all have roles to play in loving our relatives. Now I'm going to give you one main point for today, which might seem like a no-brainer to you. But ask, we might agree with this right away, but do we truly live like this. See our relationships. With our relatives. Should be shaped by our faith. Our relationships. With our relatives. With our extended family. Should be shaped. By our faith. How should we relate to. Or act towards our relatives. You could put it simply. Act like a Christian. <laughs> like Love them. Like someone who loves Jesus. Should love them. Easier said than done, right? If your experience is anything like mine, families have all kinds of history, good and bad. And when we're together, it can tend to bring out the worst in us. Sometimes it might even seem like we're in the midst of a a toxic situation. We might be longer-winded or shorter-tempered than usual. We're easily triggered. We might fight or take flight. We walk on eggshells, avoiding certain topics altogether. We know better. Politics, religion, COVID, and so on. We'll often put on a figurative mask and try to blend in, to fit in, to act like them when they're with us. Now, I don't mean to take an overly negative view, because there can be so much good in family, too. My only point is that we can easily not act like Christians around our family. Instead of letting our faith shape the way we relate, we can tend to check our faith at the door. So, what would it look like to have our relationships with our relatives shaped by our faith? Well, let's make some observations of what God's Word says should characterize our relationships, all right? First of all, I would say encouragement. Encouragement. In verse 1, Paul tells his son in the faith, Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now, that's interesting because Paul assumes that grown believers will normally be encouraging to their fathers, But in our day, is that really what we tend to be? Not really. We tend to have less grace for our family members because we know them so well. We know their patterns, their struggles, their vices, and their flaws. And so we critique, we confront them in our conversations. In other words, we're good at rebuking. But when was the last time we really sought to encourage them? Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. And this is not just our dads. When when do we last notice something intentionally good and, and let them know about that? Like if you do have a good dad, have you ever told him what he means to you? It goes on as you would a father, younger men, as brothers, older women, as mothers, younger women, as sisters, like we should encourage all of them. In a culture that is constantly trying to make us feel terrible about ourselves, we could all use some timely, grateful appreciation and encouragement. So what might you do this season to be intentionally encouraging to your loved ones? Think on it. Second thing our relationships with relatives should be shot through with is purity. Purity. It ends there. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Again, it's assumed that you're treating your family members this way. Sadly, there are many for whom this hasn't been the case. That home wasn't a pure place. And many are either led into sin or greatly sinned against at home. And if that's you, there may be relationships that you've had to cut off or you feel you need to cut off because of impure things that were done to you. I want to be clear today. That what happened to you was wrong. It's the evil opposite of what a family is supposed to be like. But, God sees you. God knows. And God can bring healing, and God will bring justice. For the record... This kind of situation, like an abusive situation, while far more common than anyone would hope, is an exception to what I'm talking about today with normal family relationships. Okay, so don't see everything through that lens. Yes, there are ways that you can give love and grace even to abusers, but that doesn't automatically mean letting them back into your life. To those who maybe making home an impure place for your relatives. God sees you too. It's not secret and it's not hidden. And if you don't repent, there will be hell to pay. And for all of us, let's hear this and recognize that purity goes Beyond just sexuality, too. Hey, various scriptures speak of pure devotion, pure prayer, pure hearts, pure worship, pure eyes, pure speech, pure devotion, pure wisdom, pure conduct, and pure thoughts. So, are our family relationships characterized by purity? Next, I would say that our relationships with our relatives should really be more than characterized. It should be defined by honor. Honor. Here in 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells the church to honor truly in need widows. Honor widows who are truly widows under the expectation that children and grandchildren will already be sufficiently honoring their parents and grandparents. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. This stems back right to the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments, to honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, when you're a kid, it seems easier to understand what it means to honor your parents, Right? It mainly means to obey them and to speak respectfully to them or about them. But this command doesn't come with an expiry date like the bag of milk in my fridge. It doesn't say, you should honor your parents until you're 18 or 21 or out of the house. And so adult believers often wonder, well, how are we supposed to honor our parents once we're grown? Tim Challies wrote a series of blogs that I think are helpful in identifying ways that we can honor our parents. This includes forgiving them, since no parents are perfect and will fall short, or speaking well of them, even just refusing to speak evil of them, giving credit where credit is due, seeking their wisdom, leaning on their experience, getting their advice, even if there are times that we can't or shouldn't take it, Or supporting them, relationally, spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Much like David prayed in Psalm 71.9, he said, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. Aging parents can feel like that, and they can feel that being old, they fear being old and alone, abandoned, or ignored by their children. And in a day and age when millions are consigned to long-term care or nursing homes or seniors end up completely dependent on the government, believers can show the world a different way. Displaying special honor. Let's address the question of how we should honor parents who might be rather dishonorable. You may think, oh, that, that's all well and good, but you don't know my parents. It may seem difficult or impossible to honor them, especially if they were abusive or absent. But first, I think we need to recognize that God expects us to honor all those that he has placed over us for his sake. Romans 13 says that we owe Honor and respect to leaders in government, for example. Do you think that Roman governors or emperors were always honorable? No. Some of them were psychotic despots. Actively trying to kill Christians. And Chalice explains, there is a kind of honor we owe, whether or not the other party has earned it. It is theirs by virtue of a God-given position. Just as God's sovereignty is displayed in elevating rulers to lead a nation, God's sovereignty is displayed in in choosing parents to give birth to a child. Just as honoring rulers is honoring God, so honoring parents is honoring God. So, how do we do this? I'm hesitant to say too much because really it is a case-by-case basis. But I'd say it starts by distinguishing between honor and obedience. So even while we may not obey, we may still honor them in how we respond. Responding gently, calmly, respectfully, even while maintaining your resolve can also distinguish between the person and their position their god-given position between honor and necessarily maintaining a relationship and between honor and agreement there are things to distinguish there but through it all remember that you're not simply honoring someone who doesn't deserve it you're actually honoring God who perfectly is perfectly honorable and totally deserves it Turning to our text, verse 4 added another word that you could use to describe relating to relatives, and that is godliness. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. Now, this should give you hope. It is possible to learn and grow in this area. Right? You're not stuck In bad habits or vicious cycles forever. Godliness is attainable here. Let them learn to show godliness. Now godliness is a very broad idea that is closely related to honor and care here. We show godliness by honoring or caring for our relatives. But one question you could ask is, how does God see my family members? How does God treat my family members. Maybe they're sinners. Maybe they're still lost. But he sees them as people who are worth dying for. Just like you. As people he loved, gave himself up for, sacrificed for. So you think of how God sees and treats them. And then you can remember Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, which says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Speaking of giving, the main emphasis of 1 Timothy 5 is to provide for our family members. You could say that we should relate to our relatives with generosity and provision. Generosity and provision. Now, Paul is specifically talking about relationships with parents and grandparents, as we've seen here. So you could ask, well, does this principle extend beyond them to maybe other more distantly related relatives? Maybe, maybe not. The Bible doesn't spell things out in detail here. God expects us To use wisdom and discernment in applying these principles into our specific life situations. Now it's, of course, good to be generous to everyone we can. But we also have limits. And I believe that we do have larger obligations to those who are closer to us. Just like my first familial responsibility is to my wife and my kids. I have much more of an obligation to my own parents than, say, to my aunt and uncle in Alaska who I haven't seen in 20 years. Or I have a greater responsibility to care for my siblings than my my cousins. And verse 8 says that we're to provide for relatives, especially for our household members, which implies that there are clearly degrees to these obligations. By the way, households look different in that day than now. Households often included extended family members, especially aging ones who are more dependent on others. But let's actually talk about that. Let's talk about caring for aging parents for a few minutes. Because this is what Paul talks about in verse 4 telling people to make some return to their parents. Or in verse 7, as something to command to people in the church. So take this seriously. Or in verse 8, where he says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Going back to verse 4, what does that mean to make some return to your parents? Well, it's basically comparing the return of care to the repayment of a debt. That's what it's comparing it to. So it's like, think of the ways that your parents cared for and provided for you over the years. And maybe if, if you didn't have good parents, you can think of those who did raise you, grandparents or a guardian of some kind. But think of your parents. Independence on God's power as creator... Your parents gave you the gift of life. They brought you into this world where you live and you breathe. How tragic it is nowadays that many are giving their parents the gift of death. But if you had remotely good parents, they cared for you from the moment of conception. My wife is pregnant right now. She is already enduring all kinds of misery and making all kinds of sacrifices, even chocolate, for our unborn child. Once you're born, your parents then waited on you, hand and foot, and you were a little tyrant. (laughs) They spent a ton of money on housing you transporting you, feeding you, clothing you. And just think, you got fed milk on tap for months, and then food on demand. And every few months, you outgrew your entire wardrobe. Not to mention getting your diaper changed approximately 5,000 to 7,000 times. If you got hurt, they bandaged you, If you were sad, they comforted you. If you accomplished something, they cheered you on. Taught you all kinds of things about life. Being sure you got educated. They maybe even let you drive their car when you were learning to drive. If you're from a Christian home, you have even more reason to be thankful. They taught you about God, and the Bible, took you to church shared the gospel with you, constantly prayed for you. And then what did we do in return for our, to our parents, really? We loved them. We smiled for them, sure. Also cried a lot, pooped a lot, kept them awake, broke everything in sight, spilled food on the ground, whined fought them about rules, maybe even totaled their car. And that's why Paul talks about making some return to your parents. Because by the time you grow up, it's like this this huge imbalance. The scales are tipped one direction. But then, as your parents grow older, you have an opportunity to right the scales a bit. Challies explains it this way. says, as children age, they grow in physical strength and the ability to earn money and the capacity to make wise decisions. Meanwhile, their parents begin to diminish in strength and lose their ability to make money and struggle in the capacity to make decisions. At some point, roles begin to reverse. As children grow more and more independent, their parents grow more and more dependent. Paul is calling for children to identify this and own it and take it on as their responsibility. Okay, so that's what he's talking about here. So what does this responsibility for generous provision look like? What does it include? Well, financial provision when necessary. It's more than this, but not less than this. There's Physical provision of, of housing, clothing, medical care when necessary. Sometimes it even means changing diapers. Believe it or not. <laughs> There's emotional support, being there for them during their difficult seasons. Spiritual support, maybe driving them to church, bringing them things for them. In the Bible, you could say Ruth is a great example of caring for her family members with love and loyalty, in the way that she cared for her mother-in-law, Naomi, emotionally and then financially. Now, wisdom will still be required as to how this will play out in our specific situations. Sometimes your parents will have legitimate needs for your time or attention or money, and other times they may have unrealistic or unfair expectations. It's true. Sometimes putting them in a nursing home is an abdication of responsibility. Other times that's the only place they'll receive the care they really need. And so it's a loving thing to do. But the principle remains that God expects you to care for them as they've cared for you. Or even more so, to care for your relatives the way he cares for you. When we think about the gospel and what Christ has done lovingly for us, sacrificing everything, going to the cross in our place, to die in our place, rising again. What do we think on that? Obligations like this to care for our family become more of a joy than a burden. It's also why if we refuse to provide for our relatives, it's a denial of our faith. Like he says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith And is worse than an unbeliever. If we believe in the gospel of Christ, we are to relate to people around us differently. And if we don't, we are denying by our actions what we say we believe. He's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, Paul isn't saying that unbelievers are just terrible people that we should look down upon, he's saying that everyone knows. That children are supposed to care for their parents. You don't need Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the Bible to know this. And if we have Jesus and the Spirit and the Bible and we deny this. We should know better. So. If you have family members who you have effectively abandoned in their need, maybe a widowed parent or an isolated grandparent, a disabled sister or an impoverished brother, today is the day to repent of your sin and start lovingly providing. North American culture in general hasn't done a great job with this. Some cultures have. But I can think of such admirable examples of this within our own church family. I think of the Ong family caring for Nanai Faye for so many years until her recent death. Think of Marilyn going every day to patiently feed dinner to her 103-year-old mother. I think of Bruno, one of our elders, moving his parents here from Brazil To care for them. Think of those of you who travel hours on a regular basis to visit lonely grandparents. I think of many others of you who made sacrifices, maybe that have gone unseen, except by the Lord. I applaud you. (laughs) Say, well done. You are doing the right thing, even when it's hard. Keep it up. And may the rest of us learn from your example of godliness and generosity. But, you might think, our families, not just our parents, our families can be really difficult to love. And acting like a Christian... Just isn't enough to motivate me to do these things. Like encouragement, purity, honor, godliness, generosity, provision. I'm asking for a lot, I know. So why should we really seek to love our relatives the way that Christ loves them? Well, God's word answers us. Our relationships with our relatives should be shaped by our faith for God's pleasure and for God's family. Our faith should lead us to love our relatives for God's pleasure and for God's family. Look again at verse 4. What reason does Paul give for caring for family members here? But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of God. The most important reason is as simple as that. This pleases the Lord. And why should we care about that? Because ultimately, this is what God does for us. He lovingly and intricately and intimately and faithfully cares for our needs. How dare we not care about what He thinks? And as we receive his care, that should spill over from us to others, including our relatives. God is pleased to see us imitating him and faithfully caring for the needs of those around us. We also should treat our family in such godly ways for the sake of God's family and his kingdom. You can think of, of Matthew 15. Where Jesus rebukes the religious leaders of his day because they were giving money to the temple or to spiritual causes instead of financially supporting their aging parents. Like they're intentionally withholding support from them, likely out of anger or spite, and they appeal to an old law that allowed them to dedicate money to God. Jesus said, this made void the word of God, completely missing the point, completely missing God's heart. And I think in this, we can actually see that we aren't meant to care for God's kingdom instead of our families. We're meant to care for God's kingdom by caring for our families. They don't contradict. Speaking of which, If God's family is the greater, more ultimate, eternal family, we should want our loved ones to enter that family, shouldn't we? We should yearn for and pray for that double bond with our family members, bonded by blood or adoption and bonded by Jesus' blood and adoption. If we truly love them, we want the best for them. And the absolute best for them is their souls being reconciled to God and destined for eternity with him. Think of the way Andrew, Jesus' disciple, when he first met Jesus, ran directly to his brother Peter. He said, we found the Messiah. Brought him to Jesus. It's a great example. Now I get it. Unless you have the gift of evangelism, or people are really ready to hear, it can be incredibly hard to talk to our family members about Jesus. For a variety of reasons. I find it difficult. I often feel like a failure here. I'd love for you to pray for me about But for more important reasons, eternal ones, we need to push through the difficulties and love our loved ones by sharing our love for Jesus with them, lovingly. Some of them, some of them may die soon. Don't let them slip into eternity without hearing from you. Some of you here right now today may not yet believe in Jesus as your Lord. But you can today. Turning to Him in faith. We can help you do this if you want to. I'd love it if you didn't leave here without joining His great family. It's the most important thing you could ever do. In a helpful article, David Mathis challenges believers says, what if we saw our gatherings with extended family, not as a chance to check out, but as an opportunity for Christian mission? It should be good news to us that we don't have to be Jedi master evangelists to be agents of gospel advance among those whom we know best. In fact, it may be better if we're not. He then advises us to to pray ahead, both for them and for ourselves. To listen, to ask questions, as as most good evangelism starts not by talking, but by listening. And to, to be clear about the gospel, early and often, showing how important Jesus is to you. But if finding opportunities to speak of Jesus at family gatherings doesn't seem to happen for you, you can get creative, Like, write out your testimony, letter to them, place it inside a nice Bible or a book that explains the gospel, give it to them as a gift. Can forward them a a video or a podcast or a sermon and ask if they can get together and discuss it with you. Invite them for dinner. Tell them in advance you want to talk about your faith. Even if they're not interested, ask if they'll listen, if only out of respect for you. Invite them to to church. Ask outright if they'll give you maybe one time to meet together where you can plainly discuss your life in Christ. And if they never want to talk about it again afterwards, then you can respect them. But finally, never, ever, ever give up praying for them. They may resist now, but that's not the end of their story. You never know. God saves people. We don't. But he uses us to sow seeds of the gospel into people's lives. You don't need all the answers. You don't need to be eloquent. God can still use you. I, I We should be hopeful here, not pessimistic, as God loves to change lives. Often transforming people's lives who we think are the least likely to ever come to him. Randy Newman, who wrote a key book on witnessing to family, speculates that realistically there could have been some cousin of the Apostle Paul sitting around some prayer meeting centuries ago telling his fellow believers, Hey, would you guys pray for my cousin Saul? I can't think of anyone more lost. He hunts down followers of the way and arrests them. Just last week, he's the guy who stood guard over the clothes of people who killed our brother Stephen... Look what God did. Even when someone dies, apparently unbelieving, we can trust God to do what is right and just. And we can bring our fears and our hurts to Him who knows. He knows. He knows what it's like to have unsafe family members. He knows what it's like to have people close to him tragically reject him. He knows what it's like to be turned on by those he loved. Like sometimes you're failed or betrayed by relatives and not just for your witnessing to them, but for other reasons. Maybe you might give honor to them and they don't honor you back. that's the case, you're in good company. When Jesus did ministry in his hometown in Nazareth, what'd they do? They rejected him. And he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. At one point, that town even tried to kill him. And just think about that. Some of his relatives could have been easily in that crowd. Later on, Jesus promised that we too might be rejected like he was, even by family. He says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they'll put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Yet if that happens... He promises that we won't ultimately or eternally be harmed, and that whatever suffering we do go through for his sake, it will be worth it in the end. Or listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it (laughs) to to follow jesus means loving him more than anyone else in our lives we might wonder like that sounds weird wasn't jesus supposed to bring peace on earth like we sing at christmas and he does He's God with us. He mediates peace between God and man. But at the very same time, by virtue of his position as Lord and God, he can divide us, he can separate us. Within our own families, some will submit to his lordship and others spurn it. Like Jason Seville explains King Jesus brings peace to earth, but he's not interested in playing second fiddle to family. When that does happen, when there's competition for affinity, he decidedly does not bring peace. Our primary allegiance must be to Christ and his family, even if it costs us ours. Even we in his family can fail each other at times as brothers and sisters in Christ. But we will never be failed, rejected, or betrayed by our truest brother, Christ. And may we always look to him as we consider how our relationships with our relatives should look. After all, Jesus was born into a human family and into an extended family at that The New Testament actually begins with Jesus' long, big, messy family tree. And then some of the first characters we meet in the Gospels are his parents, along with his uncle Zechariah and Aunt Elizabeth and cousin John. And that family led the way in anticipating Jesus' arrival. Like we've seen, other family members eventually rejected Jesus. Mark 3 says his family thought him crazy. John 7 says his brothers didn't believe in him. Even there's a time when John the Baptist doubted. And then we know, on the other hand, that his earthly mom, Mary, began to follow him, became a disciple of his. By the way, Jesus made sure that she was provided for even as he died. And after Jesus' resurrection... We know that some of his brothers, two of his brothers, James and Jude, believed in him. They wrote books of the Bible. But through it all, through all the drama and all the hurt, all the highs and all the lows, Jesus loved them. He honored them, provided for them, and he died for them. In order to bring them into the better family that he was forming. And may that dramatically shape how we now relate to our families for his pleasure and his glory. Let's pray.